0: Shrinkwrap Radio number seven hundred and ninety-two, Dr. Graham Music on his book *Respark*, igniting hope and joy after trauma and depression.
1: And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrinkwrap Radio. You're on the couch again with Dr. Dave. Rap Radio, all the psychology you need to know and just enough to make it dangerous. It's all in your head. And now here's your host, Dr. Dave.
0: My guest today is Dr. Graham Music, who has a particular interest in trauma, neurobiology and attachment, and linking cutting-edge developmental findings with therapeutic practice. He's an innovative psychotherapist, social entrepreneur, trainer, author, and thought leader. We're going to be discussing his book, ReSpark, Igniting Hope and Joy After Trauma and Depression. Dr. Graham music. welcome to Shrinkwrap Radio.
1: Thank you very much. I'm really, really pleased to be here and excited to talk to you
0: well i'm really glad to have you on the show um you know you came or come highly recommended uh, for an interview as a guest by professor brett carr who's been uh, kind of a regular on the show and he's been a frequent guest here and he's always been very lavish in his praise and to use your metaphor he really sparks me as a matter of fact, I think of him as a master sparker, if there is such a thing.
1: <laughs> and, Maybe we should start a course on master sparking, yeah.
0: And, and you know, uh one of the ways that he sparked me over the years is by telling me that I have fans at the Tavistock Clinic, and uh, I've been aware of Tavistock, you know, since my graduate school days in, in a fairly psychoanalytic program, and... Um, so sometimes I thought, well, he's just pumping me up, you know, talking about this. But I understand that, in fact, you've been a fan of the show.
1: I've been listening on and off for many years. And what I really love is the mixture, really, of both having a psycholytic understanding, but a range of different therapies. And I know your background was also humanistic and from the 1970s, etc. cetera. So yeah. I really like that mixture of neurobiology, attachment, psychoanalysis, and the and the range,
0: me too. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad it connects because that's uh, you know that's kind of what I set out to do. Uh, so we're going to be discussing your book, Respark, igniting mm-hmm. hope and joy after trauma and depression. Mm-hmm. And uh, I really resonated with the opening statement in your book that you were triggered to write this by the pandemic. And um, and I really resonated with that because uh, I know the pandemic has had an impact on my own life. Uh, the, the sequestration has really, really had an impact on on me. And it's something that I've invited in recent interviews. I've invited most of my guests to comment on the pandemic and, and what their reflections are about how it's affected us and and. You know what it means, so uh, I've right away uh, connected with your book on that basis. I, I got excited about that to see that.
1: And um, one of the Would others... you like to say? go, go ahead, do you like to say a bit about that?
0: Uh, sure, I, I um... suspect you will anyway, but yes, let's do that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Okay. So I absolutely agree. I think the pandemic has had a profound effect on all of us. And one of the things it's done is it's given rise to a kind of closing down, shutting in, uh, a dampening down. And that's an area which I've been really interested in over many years in terms of our clinical work anyway. The ways in which I think we spend a lot of time concentrating on people who are very activated maybe violent, maybe borderline, those kinds of things. But there's a group of people I've worked with over the years that I've really puzzled about who are more shut down and dampened down. And I think that comes from a lack of social connection, good social connection, mm-hmm. and ease in social connection. And so the pandemic obviously has really, really exacerbated that problem for many people.
0: Yeah, and I I found it myself, because um, one of the things you commented on is a sort of, dampen down uh, to reach out to other people to even want to connect with other people. And uh, I've noticed that in myself, you know, that that part of my life, I just, uh, it seems like was something from the past. So uh, it's good to to be aware that it's part of a larger process. It's not just me, I don't need to uh, blame myself for that, but just kind of except that that's, that's something that unfortunately has come to pass. Um, one of the things I love about your book is that you share quite a bit about yourself, about your early years, uh, your past, and at the same time, you're integrating all of that with the scientific picture. And so maybe we can start a bit with, your, with a bit of your autobiography and And you can uh, tell us a bit about uh, your growing up years and the impact that's had on uh, on your career and, and your own journey.
1: Okay. Well, I'll try and I'll think about how much to say, of course, as any therapist would. But I was a very shy, anxious little boy. In fact, I couldn't say boo to a goose. There's no way I could have spoken in public when I was a kid. Yeah. And I was also sent off to boarding school when I was very young and I found myself very timid very inhibited very anxious and not really noticed in fact and so because I wasn't causing trouble or making a problem I think I was left to my own devices a bit too much and inside I was feeling not very alive I think I was feeling sort of deadened. So, one of my coping strategies always was to contract to shut down so one of the things I've learned over the years in relation to working with for example very deprived people for example I worked off for a long time with people who were one of the classic examples people adopted from those very depriving Romanian orphanages Mm, years ago was that there's something very very dulled about them and i think that i had something of that about me when i was young which has given me a kind of empathy for people who are very closed in and shut down and who need a more active reaching out to than some other people that we work with yeah and it's interesting that
0: your work that you really became a child therapist i think has has been your your focus and your specialty and uh, i imagine that comes from a sort of a wanting to reach out to people maybe who had a similar experience
1: to your own. Yes, I I found I understood them, I suppose. I I trained first as an adult psychotherapist and I trained as an integrative, humanistic type of adult psychotherapist with a bit of a focus on the body. And then I went to the Tavistock and trained as a child psychotherapist. Where we work much more psychoanalytically, and actually for a long time I was a bit embarrassed about my humanistic past in the Tavistock Right. <laughs> and in recent years, I've dared—you know—I've managed to integrate those things into a model which I feel really comfortable with, which is very body aware, very present, a bit more active, but also with that psychoanalytic, that psychoanalytic insight as well. I hope.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've come. You know, I've come to. At first, I sort of rebelled against the uh, psychoanalytic perspective that was more or less I felt forced down my throat in graduate school. Uh, but as time has gone on, I, I have come to value the the depth of insight that has developed both originally and over the years in that approach. And it's been interesting to me to see other therapists who are trained in some other tradition kind of come around to feeling like, well, I feel like I need to go deeper. I need to have a deeper understanding. And, uh, and they end up, in one way or another, uh, getting that from, from that uh, psychoanalytic source. Mm-hmm. So one of the great things about your book that makes it so humanistically approachable, if you will, is your use of metaphors, that are very relatable. And of course, the dominant metaphor in the book is the idea of sparking. Uh, so help us dig into your idea of uh, of being sparked and unsparked of, of that metaphor, which, by the way, really speaks to me.
1: Great, thank you. I'm really pleased it does. I found it just very, very helpful. It made a lot of sense for me of a range of different things. So, for example, What we want in life is to have sufficient, easy-flowing energy. And all of life, in a way, depends on energy. If we don't have energy, we die. But some people have too little and some people have too much. And I've tried in the book to try to think about different forms of low energy, especially. So I think about a group of people who I think about as unsparked in other words they've never come to life this Uh might be the highly highly neglected people who i've described i hinted at before for example some of these orphans who are very shut down something about their whole being their whole bodies they have a pallor often they have very little vibrancy in their bodies their movement even their skin tone their voice lacks prosody and energy and rhythm And there's something which has never quite come alive in them. And so part of our job, I think, as therapists, basically as human beings, in in their presence, is to try to find some way, some hint of spark, a bit like a little spark that you can flame back into, you know, fan back into life again and grow that potential. So these are people in a way who've never had what you need. So I would think about them as um it's not that they've had it's not that they suffer terrible terrible traumas it's not the bad things really that have happened to them it's the good things the ordinary human warmth energy enhancing things that Mm -hmm. they haven't received which Mm -hmm. has meant that parts of their personality have just never really come alive
0: yeah yeah So they need a bellows of some sort to uh, exactly.
1: Exactly. get the air going and to, to bring the, the fire to life, the spark to life. Yeah. And what I would say about people like that is that there's something, when you're in the presence of people like that, it's very easy to feel quite flat and dead ourselves. And yeah. so I would think about that in terms of an embodied countertransference. So when I'm working with people who are very shut down, I myself can feel shut down, I can feel a bit bored, I might even, if I'm able to admit it to myself and other people, I might even find myself my mind wandering. Those sorts of things, because there's a lack of aliveness in them that doesn't evoke aliveness in us. So somehow we have to bear their lack of aliveness in ourselves, know that feeling deeply, and then be able to reach out to them and find those little sparks of life. Because if we, what we don't want is two dead people in the room, two deadened people, damp down people, but also. You don't want to pretend, you don't want to be pretending in therapy. You have to be genuine. And so we have to reach out to them from a place in which we can genuinely spot a bit of aliveness, but know their deadness and and find some kind of contact from that.
0: Right, right. Now you talk about unsparking and desparking. What's the difference between the two?
1: Okay. So, I mean, there's a big topic. There's several chapters on each topic, but I would suggest that desparking, comes from an external danger. And so if if I, for example, so I I think about this mostly with people, adults or children, and I use examples of both in the book, who have, for example, suffered a, a trauma. And so if there's violent assaults, especially if it's developmental trauma that's been ongoing, then often you will see a giving up and a shutting down what we often think about in terms of dissociative type of symptoms, and there'll be a numbing process, Yes, but both in the body, but also in the mind. So you might see a process, some people think about it as a kind of stupefaction, a kind of lack of thought, but also a, ver- a shutting down. And we, of course, all know what a brilliant survival strategy, numbing down, flopping, going still is, in, as a temporary, temporary response to extreme life-threatening danger. The trouble is that if you've had too much, and the, many of us as therapists work a lot with people who have had ongoing developmental trauma. Yes. And so they remain shut down. And I would see that as de-sparked, if you like. Okay. And the big difference between that group, as opposed to, I would say the unsparked to the ones who've never had the good experiences mm-hmm. like the remaining orphans, for example. The one big difference between the two is the de-sparked people have gone into dissociated states. We have to be really, really careful about try put, about re-sparking them too quickly because what they need more than anything is to feel safe in their beings and in their bodies because, the, in a way, the whole point of shutting down and dissociating is to not feel because feeling is overwhelming. For yeah, them. yeah. So, so the danger is not re-traumatizing but finding a way of allowing them to feel Safe first, I use the concept of safening. Um, I, I prefer safeness to safety, interestingly, because I think safety is safety from something, whereas safe feeling, feelings, um, so safening and feeling safe is a kind of sense of ease in yourself, in your being. And many of these people have never experienced that. And so we, in a way, have to give them that experience. It's what Winnicott described as he called it going on being, that mm. you have an experience of ease of yourself in the world when you know that there's people you can rely on, you feel securely attached, those sorts of things. And what I find is that people who are um, de-sparked into dissociative states, they, the first thing is human emotional connection, again, linking back with what we were saying about COVID, there has to be safe connection, which gives signals that, that your nervous system can relax. Yeah.
0: Feel more ease. I've just been uh reviewing uh an interview, a couple of interviews that I did with a uh, uh, Stephen, Stephen Porges, uh, yeah. who talks very much about safety, and then uh, uh Deb Dana, uh, kind of uh, an associate of his who also talked about safety. So, all of that really resonates with me, and the uh, and the the psychoanalytic and Jungian notion of of a container, of a safe container, seems to also come into play here. Um,
1: so, yeah, yeah. what I would say about that is I absolutely yeah. agree, and I think Stephen Borges has done such important work in helping us see the importance of safeness. And yeah. I would say safeness rather than safety, because yeah. safeness is that kind of internal sense of you need safety from danger, and then you need an internal sense of safeness, which comes from Yep. trust in the world which comes from good emotional experiences what i would say interestingly is that i think that some of the more recent trauma thinking that's been influenced by stephen porges has been a bit fearful of daring to process the trauma after the safeness is achieved so safety isn't the whole story it's It's a stay. It's a staging post on the way to processing trauma. So you can't go to the processing too quickly. If you leave that out, then people aren't good. They people don't really get well. They don't really heal from trauma.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I appreciate what you're saying about safeness. And by the way, let me encourage you to illustrate these ideas as you have in your book. If you have the impulse of bringing in either one of your own personal experiences or one of the case. Examples that you give in the book that would be great. So another thing that you talk about, and this reminded me of of uh, Porges, is danger signaling. Mm. Uh, so so talk so, to okay. us. Uh, what's your context on danger signaling?
1: Uh, okay. So in a way, the concept. Well, let me just turn the light on actually, because it's got a bit. If we're going to be videoed, <laughs> <laughs> um, suddenly got dark. Um, okay. So danger signals. Talk about spark. Danger signals are so. The concept has been taken from a guy called Robert Navio, who's written a lot about um, danger signaling at a cellular level, at the level of the mitochondria. So what he said, and it's partly why I love the metaphor for in terms of energy and sparking, he says the mitochondria we always thought of as the powerhouses of ourselves, that they're taking nutrients, etc., and they give us energy and power and strength. Mm-hmm. But what he what he's shown us is that when there's danger the mitochondria also are incredibly sensitive to danger and then they stop producing energy and they signal for the body to, to shut down if mm-hmm. you like and so you're it's sort of thing you often see in for example chronic fatigue syndrome or um other other psychophysiological issues and so the message we have to what the work then is in giving people a sense that they can be safe in their bodies and beings. So in a way, it's giving a, a message that the nervous system can relax, which I think is what Porges is saying as well. And so for example, I've made many mistakes over the years by working with patients who, who both child and adult patients, where I thought really interesting trauma processing work was going on. And in fact, what I, was, what I did inadvertently was trigger them back into a, a traumatized place where they would then shut down yes yeah. or they would start having ptsd symptoms maybe flashbacks and i realized i'd gone too fast too quickly and what they really needed was ordinary safeness and for a child psychotherapist that's often really boring work so the interesting work is a playing, which you're working through trauma and thinking about difficult things mm. but often as a child psychotherapist you end up In the UK, you end up playing football with a kid or throwing balls to each other and think, this isn't therapy. I hope nobody sees me doing this. But actually, it's developing a reciprocity, a trust in human relationships, those sorts of things. And so then in time, what I find time and time again is that then the play develops into something in which the traumatic experiences can be enacted symbolically when the person feels safe enough, but never before, if you like.
0: Yeah. You talk about defenses, which, of course, is a big concept in psychotherapy. Um, Does it have a a different flavor in, in your work here?
1: It does, because I think, so one of the great learnings of the last decade or two has been that defenses aren't just to be bashed through, but they need to be respected because they're always developing for really good reasons. Mm -hmm. So for example, if I came from, so I've worked many, many times with children who came from very violent homes and then they were adopted into very kind, benign, loving homes. But their nervous system and their brains do not see a benign, loving, caring person in front of them. They see a scary person. So the adoptive adopted parent might go move towards them to try to I don't know brush their hair, and the and the and the young person might flinch and and slap back. So in other words, they are defending against a danger that actually no longer is there. It's very like the cell danger response. The body thinks there's danger and won't relax. The nervous system won't relax.
0: Yeah, and in that in that context, you also talk about unconscious expectations or predictions. So the child is somehow based on their past experience, they have a, and and with children, but especially with adults, I imagine we have unconscious expectations or predictions that something bad is gonna happen. And maybe unconscious because that was formed so long ago.
1: Exactly. I think often these things are formed pre-verbally and they are very deep in terms of almost embodied ways of being in the world, which yeah. is the whole prediction error idea. The, the Carl Friston, who's a, one of the most important neuroscientists probably, talks about this idea of prediction errors, which I think is very, very useful. So that adopted boy who lashed out when his parent was trying to be kind was making a prediction error. And so we might think of that as a defense, which was there for appropriate reasons, but then how do you help them lower that defense? And that can't happen until first of all, they feel safe. And so the way I think about defenses is, is is that they have to be respected, but not too much. So we have to watch the person's nervous system to signal whether or not this is a defense that can be challenged, by a bit of pressure and often you see that in signs like sighing or tensing muscles or clenched jaws these are what a form of therapy called isdp which you might know about talks about in terms of striated muscle which is kind of more conscious muscle control if you start talking about trauma and somebody goes into kind of i don't know they, they start saying they feel faint or they feel sick or they need to go to the toilet That normally is a sign that that's overwhelming anxiety and we need to respect that by moving back and helping them to regulate. So in a way, defenses can either be challenged where it's appropriate or sometimes we need to step back and help people feel safe enough before their body signals that that, that actually these defenses can be challenged.
0: Yeah, you kind of have to titrate it, right? To use yeah exactly. a chemical
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> metaphor yeah and uh yeah. I, you mentioned iasdp and uh and i've been very impressed by that approach and the the some of the kinds of scripts that people have published to to uh to show how that can be done it's really it's really been an important contribution i think
1: i think so i've I've um, started using it much, much more, and I've got some extra training in it, and we're developing a training in it around the Tavistock as well. And of course, it was a psychoanalytically, it is psychoanalytically informed training, but maybe going back more like the early Freud, where there's more emphasis on powerful emotional states. And of course, it was originally developed by David Mallon, who was at the Tavistock, yeah. And then Davenu in the States took it forward and shifted it and changed it. But it, rather like John Bowlby, David Mallon never really had the reputation he deserved at Tavistock. And we need to, in a way, give him back his reputation for, for <laughs> developing something which is really quite special.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you talk about resetting our nervous system.
1: How do we do that? Yeah. <laughs> Easier said than done. Right. I think that for any of us, and especially as mine often needs resetting, like any of us. But what I find is that when people so there are certain people, and many of these people I write about in res in, re- in Respark have a nervous system which actually isn't a kind of danger response, but you don't know it to look at them. So for example, I'm thinking about what I'm thinking about people who, for example, might have chronic fatigue syndrome, might have had serious childhood trauma, but you look at them and you think they are as calm as anything. They must be really relaxed. It's very hard to see the signals,
0: mm.
1: and so they don't have enough what ISDDP would describe as striated muscle. So there's flatness. Often you see it in the lack of breathing, lack of breathing depth, those sorts of things, and. So, but time and time again, I find, actually it's also true of people who are more dysregulated is that we have to help people to find a way of knowing and reading their own nervous system so that they can see when they're anxious and stressed. Because actually the capacity for interception, that reading of our own internal body signals is so lacking so often in trauma because quite rightly in trauma, you need to not feel because that's a survival mechanism. And so so I can't tell you how often I've worked with people who have no idea what's going on inside them. They don't know what the triggers are, which give rise to, could be violence, but it could be turning on the computer to go back to pornography for the 10th time that day or whatever it is. The triggers are, they're unaware of the triggers because they're unaware of the bodily signals. If you think about Damasio's, idea that actually emotions are bodily states. We have to find some way of reading those to make them into feeling states. And so a lot, for me, I'm very, I watch body states a lot and I watch my own bodily responses to my patients. And then I would try to help them both be aware of them, try to check out what their body might be saying, but also a lot of it needs, a lot of it before that is in helping them regulate. And it's a a peculiar process, almost like osmosis. I find that when people begin to be aware of their own body state, they start doing things for their own body. So I, I find without me telling patients or clients, they often will be doing yoga classes without me knowing it or um, doing mindfulness classes or those sorts of things which are regulating their nervous systems. And I think often it, it nearly always has to be a psychophysiological approach to oneself.
0: Yes, yes. Um I also thought of vacations as a good example of the nervous system resetting to be yes. able to go to a really relaxing place and let go of it all. And uh <coughs> so... Uh, that,
1: Absolutely, I we haven't been having enough of those recently yeah. with COVID, yeah
0: another interesting uh, term that you use is nervous system whispering. And I think of the horse whisperer, you know, yeah. that wonderful movie. Uh, so yeah. tell us, tell us about nervous system whispering. Is this something that the, that the therapist does or
1: that the. Yeah, I think so. Of course I did steal the whole concept from the horse whisperer. Cause I just think of a lovely, a lovely metaphor. Yeah, And I also think about us as nervous system sensors, if you like. So in a way, I think to, when I'm doing therapy well, I can allow myself to be a kind of sounding board for the patient's state of being.
0: Yes. And
1: so and I might notice my heart racing when before they know that they're anxious. Or I might notice a sense of sadness in myself before they're able to be aware of that sadness. It doesn't always happen, but when it's working well, then I'm a nervous system... I become a nervous system sensor and then in a way we can whisper to their nervous system. So it might well be, so there's one patient I work with, for example, who who was, I'll give you an example, which I think was in the book, where she was very, or might be anyway, she was angry with me about holiday break. And I noticed her looking down at her hands. And in the past, I might have make interpretations or something about the holiday break but i just asked her what was going on with her hands and she told me that when she was angry with her dad she wanted to sort of fight fight or hit him or something but he would then smack her on her hands so her body had this memory from her childhood of her hands being hit and she and what was fascinating was her hands actually were red as she talked about this wow and so then we could think about, well, what do hands really want to be doing at this point? And it allowed her to talk about the fact that there was, in a way, unfinished business. This is probably linking to the work of people like Peter Levine. There was unfi- unfinished business in her body because she was angry with her father but had never had the chance to express it. Yeah. And so she had, in a way, contracted. So contraction is a part of de-sparking, turning inwards and so she was sitting on this unexpressed anger and she spent her life like that very fearful but actually and i could see from the kind of liveliness of her muscular state that there was a way in which she needed and wanted and was ready to express some of these feelings so that would be an example and actually she came, what was what was really interesting is when she could express these feelings her body came alive she was open she was I don't know if you've um, Amy Cuddy's work on um, I forgot what it's called now. Um, power poses, which had a little was a bit controversial in terms of the evidence, but I think there's something about the ways in which postures change as mm-hmm. people spark back into life. Mm-hmm. And she was a lovely example of a case where um, who sparked back into life when she, her body was allowed to express what had been inhibited and de-sparked, if you like.
0: Yeah, great example. And so she was able to uh feel better about you going on your vacation.
1: <laughs> well, right. she was able to be to allow herself to feel not good about it and to be yeah. cross. Yeah. And I think that was um the important thing. So it's not so the, the point is not to kind of not feel feelings, but it's right. to feel feelings properly and authentically in such yeah. way because a bit like Winnicott said, if you can if your anger can be known and owned and expressed and tolerated so that the other person survives your anger, then that gives you a sense of separateness, which is a tremendous sense of relief. Mm. Because if all the time she had to be scared that her anger was gonna either upset or anger somebody else, or she'll lose a parental figure, then she couldn't really ever own this feeling, which actually, now anger, at least aggression, is a lifeblood so aggression of course from latin means to move towards it's a bit like in mindfulness you know the healthy what we know is we move towards experience we fold it into our experience we don't defend against it yeah so it's a bit like in healthy so the work that richie davidson did about mindfulness where he found that that actually the kids and the adults who were able to open up to experience, they had more activation in their left prefrontal cortex and they were able to move towards experience rather than move against it and defend against it. So in a way, I think that's what we want for for ourselves and our clients and our loved ones.
0: Yeah, Uh, don't you feel like there's a wonderful sort of coming together uh, because, you know, we keep referring to this theorist and, and this other one, and there's some kind of convergence, I feel, that's happening in the field, such that it's uh, ultimately going to be a lot less divisive, and we're going to understand what the uh, critical elements
1: are. I really, really, really hope you're right. And I do absolutely believe it for myself, because I'm passionate about integration and and I, I can't see how you can understand and do the work that we do unless you take a bit unless you're able to integrate what can be really, really helpful. And I absolutely think that we're possibly on the cusp of a paradigm shift, yeah. which integrates neurobiology, attachment theory, trauma theory, but also some of the deepest aspects of psychonetic thinking. I absolutely, completely agree with you. My worry, of course, is that also the world of therapy and analysis is a very as tribal almost (laughs) as as lots of other places in the contemporary world. And so there's a danger of divisiveness and distrust of the other. But if we can keep open, then I think there's a real opportunity for a really exciting paradigm shift. And I wish I was 20 or 30 years younger to see it come to fruition, because I actually think it's going to be a really exciting time.
0: Yeah, I do too. I feel like it's happening, and at the same time, I do recognize what you're saying—that uh, human beings are human beings—and <laughs> uh, and so we are. Uh, uh, we have parts where we move into jealousy, competition, pridefulness—all of those things that can kind of uh, mess up that <laughs> that vision.
1: Yeah. Well, we're seeing it in the world at the moment. I mean, these are scary oh, times, and. Um, yeah, I wrote about this in a book actually it was published in 2014 called The Good Life where we thinking a lot about you know the best and worst in human nature a lot of it was about altruism and but actually in stress and danger we close in and close down and then we become distrustful of the other Yes, and it, it, it inhibits our capacity for empathy and openness and part it links with the whole idea of safety, really that if we can feel safe if we can help you feel safe there's more chance that they can open up and embrace the world instead of defending against it and seeing the other as dangerous and a threat and i really hope that we can move towards more a world in which there's more openness and trust and mutuality
0: yeah yeah me too and certainly uh we're at a juncture where that's coming into awareness. Last night, my wife and I were watching a British series. Uh, fortunately, the, the technology has brought us that capability, and yeah. uh, we, we enjoy a lot of British series. And this one was some, I don't remember the name of the person or anything, but a, a gentleman who goes on walking tours in in the UK. And um, so he's walking through the area where the preparations for the Dunkirk landing in World War II were going on. And uh, talking about the numbers of of people who were killed, slaughtered in that, that, Mm -hmm. you know, and so with what's happening, so I was feeling a lot of pain just thinking about that combined with the pain of what's going on in in the Ukraine and feeling like, you know, how can we not learn that, but I don't think it, it's somehow it's not a general us not learning. It seems to be more about the power people who who are able to uh, exert uh, uh, control beyond uh, beyond reason.
1: Yeah, but it's painful beyond belief, isn't it? What's happening at the moment? Yes. and yeah, no, a- a- absolutely. Yes. And um
0: so I love a quote that you took from Joan Halifax. Just a wonderful quote. It says yeah. about people who have, have she wants people to have strong backs, soft fronts, and wild hearts.
1: Yeah. I That's think a, I, I think poetic. it's such a helpful metaphor. And it and it does link with what we're talking about and it links with Ukraine as well, because I think There's some misconceptions in the world in the way in which things like fight, flight and freeze are described, for example. So um, I think we do need a strong back and sometimes that's almost, that's a therapist or a friend or somebody metaphorically putting their hand on your back to make you feel, you know, in a way having a backbone is really, really important. And many of the people we work with don't have one, but also you can have two kind of what beyond would describe as an exoskeleton, that you need a softening around the front. And you also need a bit of wildness in the heart. And I think that, so if you think about, people often put fight and flight together and they couldn't be more different. So if I'm fearful of you and I go into a fear response and then I might flee, that's my nervous system is completely different. to if I'm, so what we're seeing, I think with Zelensky, I mean, history will show, is that he's encouraging people to fight. Now, fight doesn't come from fear. It comes from strength and power and the moving towards that I was talking about before, mm. I think. And that's not, that's a strong back, but also it's something a bit wild and hopeful in that.
0: Huh. Okay, and it's well, just my, my theory anyway. Yeah, yeah, we'll see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, you talk about the importance of healthy
1: tension. Yes. Say a bit about so, it. Well, again, if we think about some of the people, the, the kinds of cases I described before where there's a lack of spark, whether, that, whether that's de-sparked or unsparked, people who there's often a kind of floppiness and a sort of deadness and a kind of lack of energy. And so that is a sign of a lack of life. And the, how do you get that going again? Yeah, yeah, And in trauma work, often that's in feeling some righteous indignation and anger about what's happened. When it, or in neglect, often it's, often it's about just just trying to spark little bits. So with the kids I was saying that like I worked with before from very deprived backgrounds, often it might be a little spark of throwing a ball at them and then they'll throw one back at me. and Or even kids on the spectrum who would often do, do very perseverative isolated things like flapping. And if you can make that into an interpersonal game instead of somebody flapping in an isolated way, and then you make it into a little bit of a joke and have a bit of fun about it, that gives right right to spark, life, and energy, which is what you need to live any kind of life. And I think those people often, particularly people who come from very backgrounds of severe neglect, they've shut down and their body has gone numb, floppy, as people talk about the flop response, in response to danger and the lack of hope, hence the soft front and the wild heart, and the, but that needs, but as well the strong back.
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh, I was intrigued. Someplace I think it's towards the end of the book, and I don't remember what the term was. But the the idea is a false spark, that maybe some people are so intellectualized, talk, talk about that.
1: Okay, so yeah, so in a way I divide the book apart from the autobiographical bits into, in, and these are very loose metaphors, de-sparked, unsparked, but also missparked, And so we might think about this as people who we might have thought about as slightly manic, for example. So for example, uh, so the great Donald Winnicott wrote about this in his own way many, many, many years ago, when he described people who he said, Um, as a way of avoiding not having anybody to rely on as an infant they retreated into their head so their mind he said their psyche never resided in their soma so they developed a kind of intellectual defense so instead of relying on a, a parent say a mother who could be there and hold them and make them feel safe and they could relax if that wasn't there they Some people's response is to develop a hyperactive mind that's always thinking, that's always planning ahead, that's watching, thinking. These people can be very bright. But underneath, we often see terrible grief and pain that's never really been faced. Mm -hmm. So the therapeutic work with those people, in a way, is to kind of slow them down and lower the nervous system so that helping them face a sadness and grief that has never really, really been faced. So, the, the British psychoanalytic school of independent psychoanalysts, like Winnicott, Harry Guntrip, Michael Balint, these people talked about the importance of something they called regression, which is when you feel safe enough to slow right down and face feelings that you that one is constantly defending against. Otherwise, sometimes with a very, very fast mind, there can be other forms of defense which are very activated as well, but that's a very classic one, a kind of full false, false self, and I call it a kind of um, mind parenting. Some people have called it a mind object, or um, I think I call it a mind mother, actually. It's this idea that you're relying on your own mind instead of relying on what you should be relying on if you're lucky, which is a parent who can really pick, pick up and pick you up, contain you, take care of your needs, and allow you to just relax, like a baby can just mold into their yeah.
0: mother. Yeah, I like the mind mother option there. <laughs> that really captures it, I think. And it seems to relate to, you know, what we used to talk about, the reliance on the defense of intellectualization. Um, yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. Um, another one I know in myself, and I'm sure many of us do. So yeah. <laughs> it made a lot of sense to me. <laughs>
0: Yeah, all of us who went to graduate school, <laughs> yeah. you sort of had to develop that to uh, yeah. survive in that particular yeah. environment. Um, so a lot of your work has been on addiction. Maybe you can tell us about that and where addiction fits, fits into this picture.
1: Well, addiction, addictive traits, I think, fit into something similar to what I just described in terms of the mind dependence which is that when people have had very, very difficult early experiences, they have a predisposition to try to manage feelings that can't be managed like deep grief, pain, rejection, hurt, upset, lack of confidence, by moving towards an object which might make them temporarily feel better. So in kids these days, a lot of it might be gaming there's a horrendous amount of pornography that people are moving towards. Um, there's various forms of other forms of addiction: drugs, alcohol, shopping. Maybe we all, you know, we can have healthy addictions. Yeah, mine might be going to the gym or doing sports, for example. But there's there are ways of holding yourself together, but also hoping that these things might provide a respite or a or a way of not feeling what you don't want to feel. So. And we all do it a little bit you know have a really bad long day I come home and have a glass of wine or an extra piece of cake or chocolate or so in small ways we all do it but, but these are forms of defensive action which are attempts to solve a problem that they can never solve and the problem with that problem is that it can then become further you can then get further drawn into addictive cycles because the contemporary world of course hijacks these systems in our brain and body and nervous systems that are designed for you know so we're supposed to move towards sex and food and things that reproduce species that make you feel good Those that dopamine that that mesolimbic dopaminergic system is what gets hijacked by these addictive processes and so quite often i see people who I work a lot at the moment with people who are addicted to pornography, interestingly, just happens to be the clinic I work in. They nearly always have trauma in the background. And what's interesting is they move much more towards that when they're feeling more triggered or upset. And when they're feeling better in themselves, they don't have the same need to move towards their object of addiction. And it's the same brain pathways, whether it's drugs, alcohol, pornography, gaming, shopping, probably gambling. You know, it's the same bits of the brain and nervous system that are firing up that's being hijacked by these systems. So, again, it's the same thing. We need to help them feel safe enough to relax and then bear and be with feelings that have long been buried and defended against.
0: Yeah, you talk about the hijacking. And one of the things that I get upset about is the fact that there are neuroscientists, people who are trained in neuroscience to understand these mechanisms in the brain and so on. Who design it into products like games, and other kinds of products, and that's yeah. to me is the devil's work. I, I
1: just uh, I absolutely agree with you, and it's very interesting how many kind of CEOs of big tech companies don't let their children or nieces and nephews use even even smartphones. Oh, wow. they knew they know what they're doing. You know, they want to keep us online because that's how they sell advertising. They want they don't want us to read a long article. You know, so their profit um, model is by keeping us online and selling advertising. And so and moving between different windows. So in a way giving rise to that kind of juddery, jumpy, vigil, hypervigilant sort of attention which then we can then take into our relationships. And it's amazing how often you might see, I don't know, a family out for dinner and they're all on their phones. Yeah. And you know, Facebook, for example, had the capacity many, many years ago to have to have something on the app which would allow them to notify people when they were friends in the area. They didn't use it. Why? Because actually that takes them off Facebook. Right. So, So I absolutely agree. And I think the CEOs of Apple and people in Google, they know they're firing up this dopaminergic system. They've used it deliberately. I completely agree with you.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, who who do you uh, want to read your book? Who is this book for? I think it's a delightful book, but what's the audience that you project in your own mind?
1: I hope... Obviously, therapists and counsellors and social workers and people, I think any professional working with these kinds of issues. I, I really hope it speaks to anyone who might have some of these issues themselves or might know somebody who's struggling with these issues. I don't think there's any one of us who sometimes doesn't feel de a bit shut down, a bit deadened. And um, it's... Or might need might feel the need to help somebody in those states, and so for me, I don't know. I wrote it for myself, if I'm honest. I wrote it because I've got I was passionate and in, passionately interested in these areas, and I felt it needed saying. Yeah. And I expect it's primarily going to be therapists and counsellors and social workers and psychologists who might read it, but I hope it's got a broader take. It's written re- as easily in as easy language as I could write it in order to. You know, attract the 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 average reader as well.
0: Yeah, I hope I hope so. I think I think that uh, it could really uh, help to spark some people or get them moving in a in a in a direction to seek out the kinds of uh, help that you talk about in the book. So I I love it. I you know I've I'm sort of besieged with self help books uh, <laughs> with. Uh, publicists and so on. And I'm getting a bit jaded and mm-hmm. turning people away. And I feel like, oh, no, not another one of these. And um, so your book superficially could be seen as falling into that category, but it's, it really goes beyond it in terms of uh, the solid uh, clinical and scientific foundation that it's based on.
1: Thank you. I really, really hope it is because it's you know it's got a deep sense of understanding in, of psychoanalytic work at its core. It's got neurobiology and attachment theory and trauma theory central to it. And even though it's written as simply as I can as it as it could be, it, I think it's got a good sort of thirty years worth of experience <laughs> in it as well. So I'd be, I, I really hope it doesn't fit into the self help category. I think it's great if people can read it for that reason, but yeah, that isn't the primary motivation.
0: Yeah. Well, it's been delightful speaking with you, uh, Dr. Graham Music. I want to thank you for being my guest today on Shrinkwrap Radio, and I hope you'll keep listening from time to
1: time. <laughs> I will most certainly. I haven't stopped listening, and I'll continue listening. And It's been a great privilege to be speaking to you today. Thank you.
0: Let the music begin. My guest today that is Graham Music PhD author of the very clear readable and instructive book ReSpark Igniting Hope and Joy After Trauma and Depression. The metaphor of an electric spark runs throughout the book and is a particularly meaningful one for me. After all I was originally planning to be an electrical engineer my teen years totally consumed with ham radio and monkeying with transmitters and receivers and all sorts of electrical gadgets. It's a metaphor of human energy, the spark of life, Bergson's élan Vital. It's a bodily state that we can experience in ourselves when we feel all charged up or see in others when their posture is slumped and caved in. As Dr. Music writes, quote, The metaphor of sparking is based on energy and electricity, which are central to all life. Spark can be in an individual such as when we feel fired up and also between people, as in sparks of desire, of mutual liking, and interpersonal electricity that is almost palpable. Some of us have more energy than others. Some of us feel we have too much and cannot calm down others have too little. Personally, I veer between the two. Quote. For me, the self-disclosure revealed in this last sentence is one of the best things about the book. Like the electrical metaphor, personal revelation runs throughout the book as well. It humanizes the author, making him someone we can all identify with reduces the gulf between us and this highly accomplished author and child psychotherapist who for much of his professional career helped to run the world-famous Tavistock Clinic, a virtual bastion of psychoanalytic thought and accomplishment. He generously gives us a peek into his life as a frightened child, shipped off to boarding school at an early age by parents more occupied with their own pursuits than nurturing a somewhat odd little boy. He writes, As a kid, I had many embarrassing and unsavory habits, which were mainly in the service of closing down my feelings. One was sucking on my school tie so that it developed a nasty texture and an unrecognizable shape. Others included constantly twisting my hair around my fingers, yes, pre-baldness, still with beautiful, curly locks. Another was jiggling my legs when others hoped I would sit still, and yet another included a song going around in my head obsessively, which was especially helpful for ignoring pain when trying to win cross-country races. It often worked, Close quote. In hindsight, he's able to see that many of his behaviors of that period were necessary defenses. As he writes, quote, My defenses were examples of contracting in the face of anxiety, of attempts to push away feelings that were too much to bear. Such defenses give rise to a tightening in our muscles and in our very being, a weariness of others, a lack of trust, and a closing down of hope. Close quote. Going back to the central metaphor of energy that motivated this book he writes quote, "sparking is the book's central metaphor we need to re-spark to recover from numbing lifelessness dulling and deadening from desparked or worse unsparked never sparked states we can also see missparking when there is much noisy manic misfiring Good emotional connection with another is what breeds ease, life, confidence, and zest. All sparking requires connection, whether physically within electrical circuitry or neuronal and synaptic connections, or psychologically between bodily energy systems. In our ensuing conversation, we were able to go over in some detail the vocabulary that has arisen out of his explorations of energy in the body. Among the ideas we discussed are the distinction between unsparked, sparked, and de-sparked, danger signaling, unconscious predictions and predictive errors, resetting the nervous system, the life-giver, the importance of healthy tension, false spark, how one can re-spark after having lost the spark, too much spark versus too little, damped and damping, developing a capacious container, the nervous system whisperer, addictions, the pandemic, and more. One of the central words in his discussion is zest, and it speaks to me powerfully. It's not a word I use often, but I hope to make it more central in my own thinking. Its presence or absence is certainly central in my experience. He writes, quote, Zest was recently found to be the character trait that most predicted resilience. As defined by psychologists, it's a component of courage and is associated with being energetic, enthusiastic, hopeful, and being prepared to face challenges rather than shirk from them. Zest and spark are contagious, and we like being around them, but their opposites, being listless and unsparked, are also contagious, as are many emotional states. Close quote. I certainly didn't know that it is a character trait predictive of resilience, and I especially resonate with the notion that zest and spark are contagious, I think of friends who I feel so enlivened by. I catch it, and it resonates between us, getting amplified in the process. I think of others who I, quote, should go to lunch with, and I leave feeling less myself. Sometimes I've felt guilty about that. I think I'll pay closer attention to what my body is telling me about prospective lunch dates. I highly recommend ReSpark, Igniting Hope and Joy After Trauma and Depression by Graham Music, Ph.D. His primary audience is psychotherapists, and it hits that target dead on. At the same time, I think it will be a very effective self-help book for any of you who may be feeling unsparked or desparked. However, Dr. Music signals the journey is not to be taken lightly when he writes, To understand and help oneself or others requires not just a set of skills, but also a willingness to undergo a journey, one that we must be fit enough to undertake. We cannot run a marathon without training, and an immersive journey with unsparked states is a kind of emotional marathon, sometimes a draining one. We need to train to be emotionally present with ourselves and others, learn to read signs of subtly shifting states, and be ready to spot and facilitate indicators of potential growth and change. Hi, Dr. Dev. This is me, Dr. Ahmed Al aghoury a psychiatrist from Alexandria, Egypt. I'm a follower and listener for your blog and radio more than five years. I got great benefit from the episode which approach sometimes is practical, pragmatic, and down to the earth, and sometimes philosophical and theoretical. I love both approaches. I love your guests from all the mental health professionals. Also, I love your uh, insight about the union approach. It has jerked me to be interested in the union approach. Thank you, Dr. Dev. Thank you, Ahmed, there in Alexandria, Egypt. Thank you for your encouragement and support. Are you aware that I put out a monthly newsletter in conjunction with the Jung podcast? It's totally free, and I'll even send you an audio file of a dream talk I gave years ago at the University of New Hampshire. In the newsletter, there's even a recap of my favorite podcast of the month, as well as a blog post from my UK collaborator, Isabella Clark, journalist and Oxford grad, as well as announcements of various opportunities to sign up. Just go to shrinkwrapradio.com and scroll down the homepage until you come to the Big Green sign-up form.
1: You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know and just enough to make you dangerous.